You're listening to the audio podcast of the weekly message preached during the online worship service of Central United Methodist Church. We are located in Arlington, Virginia. You're invited to join us for our live worship experience through Facebook or Zoom every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. Visit www.cumcballston.org for details. There you can also learn more about our congregation where we worship God, serve others, and embrace all. A scripture reading from 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 7 and chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, daughter of Aiyah. And Ishbal said to Abner, Why have you got into my father's concubine? Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord. The Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had tried to wipe them out in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? How shall I make expiation that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house, neither is it for us to put anyone to death in Israel. He said, What do you say that I should do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be handed over to us, and we will impale them before the Lord at Gibeon on the mount of the Lord. The king said, I will hand them over. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merab, daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, son of Barzillai, the Maholothite. He gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they impaled them on the mountain before the Lord. The seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest, at the beginning of barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aiath, took sackcloth and spread it on a rock for herself from the beginning of harvest until rain fell on them from the heavens. She did not allow the birds of the air to come on the bodies by day or the wild animals by night. When David was told what Rizpah, daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the people of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hung them up, on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. He brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who had been impaled. They buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin in Zelah, in the tomb of his father Kish. They did all that the king commanded. After that, God heeded supplications for the land. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. David was not born a king, but a shepherd. Eventually, he married the daughter of King Saul. And after all four of Saul's legitimate sons died, his son-in-law, David, inherited the throne. Now, he inherited some problems, as rulers often do. The nation of Israel had been at peace for a very long time. There had been a vow between the leaders of Israel and their neighbors, Gibeon. 
But Saul broke that vow. He murdered them, and that created some bad blood between the nations. And now that David is on the throne, there is a famine. It's lasted for three years. So David reaches out to God, and he asks, what can be done? And that's when God reminded David that the Gibeonites have not been treated justly. And so David then goes to the Gibeonites and he asks what he can do to make things right between Israel and Gibeon. So they ask for seven male descendants of King Saul. They want to kill them. Since Saul himself is dead, they can't kill him for retribution. And so they ask for seven male descendants. The Hebrew word for seven has some similarities to the word for vow. So there might be some symbolism here in the number. And so they have asked for these seven men. And David complies. He simply says, I will hand them over. Executing seven men for the crimes of their father or grandfather is not justice. And it will not create peace. But King David, he just complies. Now, when David selected which seven men should die, he didn't select any of Jonathan's sons. Jonathan had been a son of Saul and the best friend to David. So instead, David chooses two sons born to Saul and Rizbah, a concubine, and five sons born to Saul's daughter, Merib. How could David have just selected seven men to murder. He is hailed as a, a great king, a military leader, a musician, a beloved man of God. And yet he has just sent seven men to be horribly executed. David knew that he wasn't from a bloodline that was royal. He was born a shepherd. So I'm wondering was he also hoping to help prevent others from trying to claim the throne for themselves? Whatever his reasons, David simply said, I will hand them over. Seven men are horribly killed, and two women are left without sons to provide for them. But Rizbah does not abandon her two sons. She stays with their bodies for six months, chasing off birds and animals, sleeping on the rocks, sitting on a cloth of sackcloth. She's unwilling to let her sons be abandoned even after their death. From the harvest time to the rains, six months, she protects the bodies of her dead sons. Even after their heinous sacrifice, the famine does not end. We don't know what Rizba was thinking, but we know what she did. And her actions speak for themselves. She would not let the injustice that was perpetrated against her sons go unnoticed. She was there day and night. Six months is a very long time to protest. It can feel like an eternity when you're protesting alone. It would have been easy for her to give up hope, but she stood her ground 
and she stayed with the bodies of those seven men who had been executed. Eventually, this one-woman protest caught the attention of King David, and something changed. He brought their bodies back for burial. In addition, he got the bodies of King Saul and his son Jonathan, and he buried them in the royal tomb as well. The sons of Rizba and Merib cannot be brought back from the dead, and neither than the countless Gibeonites whom Saul had murdered. But a proper burial does help to right the wrong of this injustice. Rizba's six-month protest that came from her grief, that is what inspired the action that brought about justice. Now we'd like to think that this story is an ancient story of barbaric times, and something like that would never happen today. But Rizba is the mother of Emmett Till. Rizba is the mother of Matthew Shepard. Rizba is the mother of Brianna Taylor. There are Rizbas all around us. Her cry still echoes today. Her tears are the tears of parents whose children have been killed in war. Her anguish is the anguish of parents of black boys who are killed in police custody by use of excessive force. Rizba is every protester who calls our attention to the violent and barbaric truths of our own modern society. Absolutely nothing about this scripture story is comfortable. It is horrific from the beginning to the end. But it is a powerful reminder that even a single voice can make a difference. It can feel hopeless to stand up for what is right when it seems like no one is listening. But Rispa is proof that the fierce testimony of a single woman can force even a king to pay attention. Her grief motivated her to action, and it caused change to happen that brought about justice. This story happened early in David's reign as king, and I hope the lesson that he learned from Rizba stayed with him until his own death. It's incredible that Rizba's story even makes it into scripture at all. You see, the source of First and Second Samuel was a big fan of King David. And he also collected the stories that wrote First Kings. And so if you took out this small collection of stories that includes Rizba's, it would provide a heroic narrative that paints King David in a perfect light. And yet there is a collection of stories there in Second Samuel that disrupts the arc of that narrative of a perfect king. Someone decided that Rizba's story needed to be shared. It's hard for us to process, but it is important because without her story, we wouldn't know how grief can be a protest against injustice and power. We would lose the power of grief motivating us to action.
I can just imagine Rizba there by the bodies of her sons on the stakes on which they were murdered. And it reminds me of the image I hold of Mary at the foot of the cross where her son Jesus was murdered. Another story of an unjust death. Jesus, who did not deserve to die, and yet he was murdered by the state. And we choose to have the cross as the symbol of our Christian faith. It's a symbol of a violent torture device. But for us, that symbol has been transformed because it is an empty cross to remind us that Jesus left the cross, went into the tomb, and three days later was raised from the dead. And in that resurrection, he defeated death once and for all. But between his death and resurrection, his family, his friends, his disciples, they grieved. We know that many of them fell away, but Mary remained there at the foot of the cross. And her grief inspired her action to make sure that the body of her son found a place to be buried before the Sabbath day. And then the other Marys went with the anointing oil, expecting to find their friend, and instead of a tomb filled with death, it was empty. It was empty. Expecting to find death, and instead they found life. The grief that motivated them to walk that day to the tomb to anoint their friend, that grief inspired their action that then gave them the gospel message. The finality of death has been defeated, thanks be to God, but it was the grief of the women that brought about that. They were the ones who made sure that Jesus' body was buried. And then they were the ones that went to the tomb to anoint his body. And instead, they found a message of hope and life. Jesus' resurrection means that death has been defeated and no longer has the final word. It means that not only is death defeated, but injustice does not have the final word either. We worship a God who transforms a torture device into a symbol of hope and new life. We worship a God who hears the cries of people who are suffering from injustice, and he calls God's people to action. We worship a God who proclaims that the violence done to Rizba's sons does not have the final word, for they will find their rest when they are buried in the royal tomb. We worship a God and we proclaim that the racist violence that murdered Emmett Till and the racist violence that continues to this day does not have the final word. We worship a God who wants us to listen to the cries of Rizba echo from thousands of years ago to the cries of Rizba who is all around us today. This weekend, our nation has been filled with cries and grief. There are many who are lamenting the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg.
She was one of eight Jewish justices to ever serve on the Supreme Court. I wonder, as part of her faith tradition, if she ever studied the story of Rizba. If so, I would really have loved to know what she would have said about how Rizba's grief led her to protest injustice. Because I see echoes of Rizba's story in Ruth's story. In 2004, she gave a speech at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. And in her remarks that day, she shared how the injustices and the tragedy of the Holocaust were part of her inspiration for her life's work to seek justice. She took the grief that impacted her community and the world through the Holocaust, and she turned that grief into action. I want to share with you some of Justice Ginsburg's words from that speech in 2004. Quote, The demand for justice runs through the entirety of Jewish history and Jewish tradition. I take pride in and draw strength from my heritage, as the signs in my chambers can attest. A large silver mezuzah on my doorpost, on three walls in artist renditions of Hebrew letters, the command from Deuteronomy, justice you shall pursue. These words are ever-present reminders of what judges must do so that they may thrive. In striving to drain dry the waters of prejudice and oppression, we must rely on measures of our own creation upon the wisdom of our laws and the decency of our institutions, upon our reasoning minds and our feeling hearts, and as a constant spark to carry on, upon our vivid memories of the evils we wish to banish from the world. In our long struggle for a more just world, our memories are among our most powerful resources. May the memory of those who perished remain vibrant to all who dwell in this fair land, people of every color and creed. May that memory strengthen our resolve to aid those at home and abroad who suffer from injustice, born of ignorance and intolerance, to combat crimes that stem from racism and prejudice, and to remain ever engaged in the quest for democracy and respect for the human dignity of all the world's people. End quote. 2020 has been a year filled with grief. Some of it has been intensely personal and individual, and some of it has been collective, not just for our nation, but for the world. May we, as people of faith, allow the grief that surrounds us and invades our lives inspire action so that we will leave a legacy of justice and righteousness. Thanks be to God. Amen.